In American society, money is a taboo topic. We're taught at a young age it's improper to talk about it, but we're also bombarded with messages about the power and importance of money in our everyday lives. And by not talking about it, we miss out on the skills and lessons we need to effectively understand and financially plan. That changes today. Welcome to Money Tales. Hosted by Sandy Brager and Cami Doder, Money Tales brings more than 35 years of combined professional experience in personal finance to demystify money and demonstrate what it's like to speak openly about personal financial matters. Join us each episode as they interview modern-day movers and shakers about how money decisions intertwine with their daily lives in order to give you better insight into productive financial conversations. Subscribe today and register for our blog, Fathom, at Asperient.com slash podcasts to increase your money mojo. And now, here's Cami and Sandy. Hi, this is Cami. Today's Money Tales guest is Janine Kahihe. Janine became a single mom at a young age in a community of immigrants, going through the motions and not striving for more. All that changed when Janine looked down at her five-year-old daughter's face and realized she needed to create something different for her daughter. Janine got curious and set out to create her own career path, dodging obstacles of judgment along the way. Hi, this is Sandy. Janine is the Chief Advancement Officer for Communities and Schools the national organization that ensures every student, regardless of race, zip code, or socioeconomic background, has exactly what they need to realize their potential in school and beyond. In her role, she oversees the fundraising, marketing and communications, and new business development functions for the organization. Janine is an emerging thought leader in the nonprofit sector and has been invited to speak with nonprofit leaders to support them in thinking strategically about building sustainable fundraising plans. Please stick around after the interview for our takeaways from this discussion. Now, on to our conversation with Janine Kahihe. Janine Kahihe, it is so great to have you on Money Tales. Thank you so much for having me. I'm glad to be here. Well, to to start us off, would you provide a little overview of your life? I know that's hard to do in a short period of time. Focus on a couple pivotal moments that really make you the person you are today? Sure. So I am the daughter of immigrant parents who came here from a country um, in South America called Ecuador. I was born and raised in New York City. And so that definitely shaped who I am because I did grow up in a community of immigrants with a lot of individuals who were for lower income neighborhoods. And so that definitely has shaped me, particularly in my current role, where I work for a national nonprofit. And in my role as chief advancement officer, I am having conversations about wealth with quite regularity. (laughs) So it's interesting from where I come from to the sort of conversations I'm having with my day job. So I, that I think that again, just my experiences growing up definitely shaped who I am and just my sort of responsibility to ensure that I'm creating more power balances in kind of the existence of wealth and wealth dynamics. Tell us a little bit more about being raised by two parents from Ecuador and how were your conversations at home. What were you talking about? Sure. Well, I also, I think that's a really great question. I also felt to mention that I am one of five siblings. So I grew up in a family of seven. And so the conversation we were having, I would say we're probably more centered around 
foods, what was we eating, chores, <laughs> and those were a lot of the conversations we were having. And so we were not really talking about a lot other than just the day-to-day sort of existence. So like thinking more future-oriented, which is not something that was part of our regular experiences. You know, there was always a sort of... Um, sort of a understanding that we were all going to go to school, go to college, and then just sort of live happily ever after. But as far as like conversations about what that looked like, those were not conversations that we were having in our homes. Janine, how were you thinking about money as a, a child? I would say in the community that I come from, it's really a very much a scarcity mindset. We were really existing to really try to make sure we were surviving. So I would say that it was more about survival. I would even have some experiences, which I think that people from lower income neighborhoods probably understand what a susu is. And what that essentially is, you gather like 10 people and you sort of contribute weekly, whether it's $100 a week or whether it's whatever amount that is, and you take a number from one to 10. And so essentially, if you're number one, you get the full pot of the 10 people that invested. So that would be that amount of money you get. And every week, everyone else gets the amount from the, from the total. Of, of those that were contributing. So if it's, if it's 10 people times 100, it's $1,000 that you get when it's your number is coming up, right? So it wasn't about saving in a bank account. It was really among community where everyone sort of pulls together their money and depending on what number you draw, that's when you get your money. So it's, that's when you had the most amount of money is when you were part of these susus. And so that was my experience with money of when you had large sums of money. So let's talk about that some more. How would... Asusu begin and who would determine the participants? It also started from trust because you need to trust that when your number is up, there's going to be money that's going to be distributed to you. So it really starts from someone who is looking to sort of make a purchase or is short our money. So again, it's going back from the community I come from. There's a scarcity mindset where if something happened, if there was an emergency, if there was something that happened with someone's medical or if there was with their vehicle or their children, they needed money and they needed it fast. So they may sort of come up with the SUSU idea, say, hey, listen, I need to do this. Would you be part of it? And you can sort of reach out to people in the neighborhood that you know that you can trust. And But there's also moments where that trust is broken and you don't get the money back. So th- there's always that risk as well. But that's what it would really start because again, it was not really a, a neighborhood where you can go out there and, and borrow money from a bank, which is what my what someone might expect is what you would do. But again, I grew up in a community of immigrants and some were undocumented. So this was not something that was accessible to everyone in the traditional means of how we borrow and how we sort of invest and how we talk about money. It was always that scarcity mindset. It's just a way to multiply your money for a short period of time. Exactly. And so how often were SUSUs happening? They were happening a lot. (laughs) You know, there was always a need. But again, if you were doing it for 10 weeks, you had to wait for the 10 weeks to be over in order to start another one. Sometimes people would join multiple SUSUs. So then you have multiple incomes and you draw different numbers. (laughs) But you know, when you're, when you're living with, you know, in these sort of environments, you have to be creative. So the creativity is definitely booming when you don't have, you have to figure it out. How are you going to get out of your circumstances? Is there bookkeeping going on? Loose, (laughs) loosely. (laughs) Wow. And you said you grew up in New York City. Correct. New York City has a lot of different neighborhoods and the socioeconomic spectrum of New York is, is huge. When you were growing up, were you leaving your neighborhood? And did you have a chance to see other parts of the city that maybe looked in, in 
operated differently than yours? So I was born and raised in Corona, Queens. So I always make sure I plug my neighborhood. <laughs> and so, you know, anyone who knows Corona, Queens, it is a community of immigrants. I really, as is very common when you live in low income neighborhoods, you don't get out your neighborhood often. The times when I was leaving my neighborhood was when I was going on trips with school. So schools would take us to go see the Twin Towers. We would go see different museums. So in those instances, I would, I would leave the neighborhood and go see different boroughs, but definitely not leaving the city. I was still in New York City just exploring different boroughs. And did you notice the difference in, in economic situations when you left your neighborhood? You don't really notice because you go on the bus, right? So you take, public, you take the bus that will, will drop you off the yellow bus, you know, cheese bus. You get picked up from your school and you get dropped off at the location at the entrance. So you're not really exploring the neighborhood. You're just going out to that experience. Janine, were you working as a, a young kid? Did you go get jobs or do any sort of entrepreneurial things to raise money? That's an interesting question because it depends on what age, right? I started working, I think when I was 14, 15 years old, I was a receptionist at a doctor's office. So I was, you know, collecting co-payments, you know, talking to insurance companies. And even that job was something that I got through family. It was my godmother who actually worked at the doctor's office. She sort of vouched for me. I didn't know what I was doing, but it was, it was really great experience because I also was interacting with the, with the patients and the families that were coming in. So it was, I think it was a really great experience, but I wasn't really connected with what I was doing because I had no idea what I was doing there. That's a hard job. That's a, and a lot of responsibilities. But I would say another job that it's really important to know, and it's, it's again as a reminder of where I come from. At 16 years old, I actually was working at a factory, also known as a sweatshop. So my mom and other individuals from our community, they worked in these different sweatshops. And it's actually in the heart of New York City in Herald Square. And it's a building that you couldn't just pass by and peep inside and see it. it there, there was no windows to the outside. It was really sort of a secretive location, but there were so many of these sweatshops in that location. And I remember as, as a kid, I was too young to work there. And, and I remember that I still went there and I had to pretend I was older. I was 18 because I was, I was not able to work the number of hours that I was working. And I remember that one of the interesting things about being there at my age in particular, as I was growing up and learning the world is seeing that this was how so many families work who don't have either the language barrier, they, they are not able to speak English well, so they don't have a lot of options with jobs, or perhaps they also were undocumented. They were not there, you know, getting the jobs that Americans are looking for. And it was hard. It was long hours. I mean, they were showing up there at 7 a.m. They were clocking out like 12-hour days. And it was really like hard conditions. I was working there all summer. And I remember that after that job, I remember you know, it was during the summer, I bought my first expensive jacket, I bought myself a leather jacket. And it was just something that it felt so good. Because when you come from so little, those things mean so much to you, right? Those things now I can buy a jacket, and I'm not emotionally attached to it. But I worked so hard in that factory to be able to buy myself a leather jacket. And when I went to school in the fall, I was wearing my fancy new leather jacket that I spent the summer work, working at. But it's also now as an adult, a reminder 
of how young people my age at that time are involved in so many activities that a young person should be involved in. You're kind of exploring, you're, you're doing internships, you're doing job shadows, you're doing SAT preps, you're involved in sports. But, you know, my family, that they were new to this country. They did not have the sort of knowledge of what sort of experiences they can present to me and my siblings. And so the opportunity to be able to make a couple of dollars was something that was appealing. Because again, when you're in that scarcity mindset, you're like, hey, a couple of dollars and you can go ahead and buy your own clothes is something that feels more just something that's more of interest than being able to put someone in something that you don't see those sort of short-term results from. It's not a long-term investment. It's a short-term gain. And I have some dollars in, in my pocket and I'm not a financial burden to my family. Will you tell us a little bit more about that feeling of being able to buy this jacket? You've, you've worked so hard and you've saved this money. Tell us what that was like. It was just something that I felt really proud of because I felt like, hey, I, I worked for this, I worked really hard and I, I mean, I wanted to wear it like all the time. <laughs> and you know, what's, what's interesting is now that my perspective has sort of changed, I see that still in the communities that are similar to the ones I come from, where you see people that are wearing things that are probably far beyond their financial means. And I know that I also experienced I see judgment against people that are like that. Like, why are they not investing? Why are they not like putting that money aside? Why are they not doing something that makes better sense? But you, it's important to understand the mindset of people who, when you come from so little, something like that is so meaningful and you feel good even for a moment to be able to say, I have this nice expensive thing on me. And that is probably the closest proximity to feeling like I have more than what I currently have, which may not be a lot. And so for me, like it's, it's important to me to talk about it because I'm now in a different sort of position in my life where I could afford those things, but now I choose not to do those things because they don't interest me in the way they did back then. And so I think my, my sort of relationship with tangible things has shifted. But I also understand because of my own experiences, how when you come from nothing, sometimes those things do mean a lot. I'm really curious to hear more about the transition. But before we get there, Janine, you mentioned that education was really important to your family. And it sounds like you knew early on that there was an expectation of, of having education beyond high school. Right. As you thought about college, what were you thinking about, and specifically from a cost-benefit perspective? My thoughts were not quite that sophisticated, and I think that it's important to say that because there's an assumption that every high school senior is in the same mental and emotional space in thinking about those things, and the reality is that that's so far from the truth, and I did not know or make that connection with education and coming out of my circumstances. I just knew, oh, hey, I'm supposed to go to college because that's what my parents are telling me I'm supposed to do. 
but I never took the time to actually think about my future. My college advisor actually applied for college for me, for community college for me, because I did not do it because I was so disengaged with my future. I was so disengaged with the vision for myself because again, I'm in an environment where you're just surviving. When you're in survivor mode, you're not thinking about your future. And there's so many young people that that is the reality for them. You can't, you can't imagine, you can't dream, you can't think about all of those things beyond your proximity of your neighborhood if you're just on survival mode. So I, again, I'm so grateful to my college advisor for filling out the application for me because she was worried. She said, you have to do something after you graduate. So I didn't have that connection, as you mentioned. And so I was just going through the motions. I ended up going to community college. I was going through the motions. I ended up having, getting pregnant. I had my daughter at 19, still going through the motions. And I, after that, I, I completed community college. I went off to four-year degree major and I earned my undergraduate degree. But again, I still had no idea. I was still going through the motions. And it wasn't until I entered the workforce where it sort of clicked for me I need to create something different for my daughter. I need to make sure that I'm creating a path for her that I didn't have for myself because I need her to have mentors. I need her to see strong female leaders. I need her to be able to have a path that she can follow and design her life in a way that she has all of her dreams at her disposal. So that's when I had a real change in my sort of mindset and my relationship with my future, the, the future I wanted to design for myself and sort of like what, I, what legacy I wanted to leave for her. What do you think prompted that? It was my daughter. When I started to see her have expression, I would say maybe by the time she was five, I remember thinking like the sweetness of her face and, you know, the way a child looks at their parents, like your, their parents are their hero and Shiro in my case, <laughs> and how she just like admired me in so many ways. And I just didn't want to let her down. I didn't want to let her down. So it was really just that sort of connection where I love my daughter so much. I didn't want to let her down. That is wonderful. So Shiro, you've come out of your college. You're a mom. What, what did you do? I became a sponge. I started to ask questions. I, and I think that that is really, for me, the biggest learning and the biggest thing that I encourage is curiosity. And I remember I started working at this foundation and that was my first job. And I was working at this nonprofit. It, it was a small, very grassrootsy sort of organization. And I remember speaking to the most senior people on, on, staff and I would ask them, well, what do you do exactly? And it was such a bold question. Here I was an assistant, right? I was, a, I was an administrative assistant talking to the executive directors, talking to directors. So tell me about your job. What do you do? What kind of decisions do you make? And like, how did you get there? What sort of like steps did you take to get there? And I was just wanting to know. And I remember one time I was asked by an executive director, you know, well, what do you, what do you want? And I remember saying, I want to be a director one day. And I will have to say this, that that response never left me. And the reason her response didn't leave me is because she looked at me dumbfounded that I had the audacity to want to dream 
to have such a position because I came from a small community college. I went to CUNY school and she had her degrees from, you know, very fancy universities and I didn't. So how dare I dream? How, how dare I have the audacity? And so I think that for me, like I started to really um, understand the differences between people who look like me and people who come from more privileged backgrounds and the biases that exist. Because again, my just being curious, my just being a mom that loved my daughter and wanted to be better and wanted to contribute and wanted to lead one day, it was met with how dare you. That is so like unattainable for you. Janine, that sounds so frustrating. I think in the moment I, I wasn't frustrated because I think that when you're receiving that sort of experience, you exist in a world where you're kind of wondering what's wrong with you. It is not the first time, nor will it be the last time that I was met with someone questioning what I'm able to contribute. It is not the first time. I'm often met with that because of the way I look. I've worked in very white environments where I've had to speak louder. I've had to have more um, qualifications. I have to make sure that whatever I said was brought in with a certain level of expertise and backing that was outside of my own thoughts because I am always going to be questioned differently. So even her looking at me as if I had the audacity, it was just, I, I, I was very confused, if I'm being honest. I was not um, frustrated. I was confused because I wasn't sure why she was making me feel bad about myself. And I don't think she realized what she was doing. And it was something that because I am where I am now, I still remember that. And it sort of drives me in the work that I do, where I work, again, as a national organization to empower young people of color to be able to come out of their circumstances in different ways. I spend a lot of time speaking with high school students in career days. I make sure that I sort of create a different sort of image of success for them and what that could look like. And it doesn't matter what your path looks like because you're going to be met with a lot of individuals that are going to think that you can't because you look the way you do. And I, I definitely, as I mentioned, I, it's not frustrating. I think it's frustrating now as an adult because I have different like lens, but in those moments, you're just left wondering like what's wrong with you and you just feel bad about yourself because you're like, what's, what's wrong with me? What's wrong with me? Janine, thanks for sharing that experience with us. It's, it's really terrible, but it's important for us to be mindful that, you know, I, I just can't imagine someone doing, you're, you're so smart, you're so driven and I, I love these stories of being a sponge. Tell us, did you find any mentors along the way? And, and then if you did, how did you find them? I did. You know, I would have to say I'm so fortunate that I have met some incredible women of color who just sort of took me under their wing. And I still talk to them. And they really met me with such care and kindness and I was so glad that I had that experience so early in my career because one of the things that I continue to sort of be in my day-to-day -day interactions with my team is just remind reminder and remind them to be kind, that if I ever show up as unkind, I don't care how many things I have on my plate, please call me out on it because that is a value that is so important to me and to show up as kind. And so I was really grateful that I was met with, men with mentors that were just 
not just incredibly kind in their sharing their knowledge and sharing their their wisdom, but also the fact that they look like me. You know, there are women of color that look like me, that we have shared experiences and we've experienced those biases. They've experienced those biases so we can talk about things differently, not just about the work, but talk about our identities. And so that was really important to me. And I'm so grateful that I had them so early on in my professional career because it's definitely shaped who I am. You're very ambitious. You're working as an admin in a nonprofit. You see the destination. You want to be director. You get virtually slapped in the face with unkindness. You find some mentors. How are you moving forward? And what's happening financially to you as you move forward in your career? Sure. So <laughs> I'm laughing because one of the things that I've noticed that I've become, it's also driven me, is, is I was angry a lot. But I would say that being angry is, I don't know how to sit with my feelings. I use that to sort of create change, right? So through, through my being angry because I felt like in this particular role, I wasn't growing because the people that were growing were white. They were not people of color. And then I would go into other jobs and I would try to like grow and learn. And over time, what that anger sort of like also created for me is also just more confidence as well, because I was able to be expressive. I learned how to use my feelings into words. And what I also started to do is really wanted to connect with my learning. So I've really became a reader. I became a reader. I read about two dozen books a year. So it's 24 books a year. I read a lot of books about identity. I read books about leadership. I read books about just people and stories. And it's also something that I started a conversations in with women of color in a book club that I started two years ago, where we've been able to talk about our experiences as women of color in, in the workforce and what that means. So it, it's helped me to really recognize that it's not just me. I wasn't just imagining these things and these experiences. This is a real common thing. The things that I was experiencing pretty much every woman of color that I've talked to has gone through these things. So it sort of gave me a lot of affirmation in that, okay, this is not me. Let me now work to change this. I, and I was getting more and more confident in being able to just call things out and say, hey, that's just not right. Like, you know, and I'm like, at worst, what is the scariest thing that can happen? I can get fired. And my reaction to that was always, oh, well, if I don't feel like you're respecting me as an individual, um, then, then that's okay. I don't need to be here. And I think that people started to respect me more in my career. And I've actually started to, in my current job, it's funny because I said all of the things that I feel and that I felt and they still hired me. So I was like, oh, okay, great. I guess you can just be your authentic self. And like, it's okay. There, there is the right environment that's going to be receptive to that and give you the space to be able to lead in the way that's authentic, that's honest, that's also not doing harm and that's creating more equity in work dynamics. So I think that all of my experiences completely shaped me and shape my identity and the way I sort of show up as a leader as well. It sounds like it. That's amazing. And congratulations for all that growth. Presumably, as you're moving forward in your career, you're starting to earn a lot more money. Oh, absolutely. So tell us about that. What's that like coming from an immigrant neighborhood and starting to make money for the first time? Like really make money? Yeah. <laughs> you know, I think that's interesting because there's like a short answer and, and a longer answer. So 
in having a lot of conversations with people who come from neighborhoods that look like my own, there is a responsibility to also make sure that you're supporting your family. So that's just like a reality. And so it's really hard because depending on where you're at, you have that sort of responsibility, that, that responsibility. But then separately, because there's been so many years where you did not have your finances in order because we did not have the same starting point, you spend a lot of time, the first few years at least, when you have money paying back for mistakes that you've made when you didn't. And I've heard that from many people of color. And that could have looked like bad investments. We all know about the real estate crisis that happened in 2008 when there was a lot of like bad loans put out to families who really wanted to have the sort of American dream. But, you know, knowingly that they were not able to afford it, they were put into these bad investments. So I think that that is just a reality and that you make bad decisions. You know, there may be credit cards, there may be student loans, right? Because you don't have the same sort of education and financial fluency to be able to make the best decision that will not put you in a bad financial position for the rest of your life. As a single mom, that was certainly the case for me. While I didn't have student loans because I went to community college, so I was able to have all that covered. I, I did not have that, but I was a single mom. And as a single mom who was not making a lot of money, I had no choice but to put things on credit cards. So you do spend the first few years paying back for your mistakes. You do because you're just surviving and you have to survive by any means necessary. So I would say that now over time, what that has sort of translated for me, and I think going back to my care for my daughter is sort of the generational wealth concept where there's a difference between income and wealth and making sure that I am very vocal in talking to my daughter about wealth and talking to her about even when she wants to buy things that I feel are frivolous, like letting her know, okay, if you want to do that on occasion, that's fine. But making sure you put your monthly savings plan in order and thinking about the bigger investments that you want to make, what does that look like? I talked to her about generational wealth and the investments that I'm making right now and what that means for the legacy I'm leaving behind for her. And so now when I think about it, I'm still that I'm still that girl that couldn't afford certain things. So it's still painful to me to have to spend money on something expensive. That's why I said earlier in the conversation where now that leather jacket that I was like so proudly wearing, I don't even want it because I can't, now I say I can't afford it. I can't afford that expensive leather jacket because I'm thinking about what is, what is taken away from, which is the future, the future investments that I want to leave for my daughter and for the multiple generations that follow. So I'm thinking more about generational wealth. So, so it's evolving that way where I can, not afford the leather jacket that somehow I was able to afford when I was making minimum wage when I was 16. <laughs> wow, that's a fantastic story. And I, I want to hear more. But I'd like to hear first, your journey from the assistant to becoming a director, and then to the C-suite. Would you share that journey with us? I, I don't even know how to even start with that. I mean, I think for me, again, when I said earlier, I, I was angry a lot. <laughs> I was angry a lot because I felt that I was doing the work. One thing that was really instilled in me from my immigrant parents is you have to work really hard. So I was finding that I was working really, really hard. But what I was finding is that what was impaired with that was the compensation wasn't matching what I was contributing. 
And so that was something that, you know, continued to keep me really frustrated, but I was learning the skills that were more senior. I just wasn't receiving the compensation. So I would went through a few different job transitions because I already was clear on what I wanted. I was clear on what I saw for myself. And it's important to make those decisions for yourself. Sometimes when it comes to jobs in particular, I hear people say, I'm not happy. I'm looking for another job. Do you know who's hiring? And my response is, well, first you have to get clear. Like, what do you want? Right? There's plenty of jobs out there. What do you, what do you want? And so I was clear. I was always clear. I want to be in a leadership role. I was clear. So I made a decision very early on when I was still an assistant. And it has really guided me because whenever, I mean, that takes time time but I was just so maybe I was young and just silly and I was just like no this is what it is you know <laughs> tenacious. I'm, I'm hearing tenacious yeah <laughs> this is what it is and so I always led as if I was already in the c-suite even when I was just the assistant so I always showed up in that way and I think it really helped me and when I and people were noticing that this assistant was not an an executive, then I was like, well, then you know what? I'm not going to be here anymore because you're not recognizing that I deserve a more elevated senior role and that I'm going to go somewhere else where they see that. And so I started to grow because I was, again, super intentional. And the word intentionality is something that also guides me. I've always been super intentional and clear. Once I got clear, I got clear. And oftentimes I speak with many people who are just not clear. And so that's something that has always guided me, just the intentionality of who I saw myself to be. Janine, earlier you said some really powerful things about the difference between income and wealth. And I'm curious, how did you learn about wealth? A couple of things. As I mentioned earlier, I, I work in a nonprofit organization. So my role as chief advancement officer, a part of that work is fundraising. And so I am in close proximity with super wealthy individuals with regularity. And I would say still very early on in my career, I actually was going to really fancy galas. I was going to golf tournaments. I was going to, I I flown on private planes. I've done that because of my close proximity with wealth. I didn't have any wealth, but I'm like, man, these people are doing some things that I didn't even know existed because I never had that sort of life. So I was seeing another way of living. <laughs> I was seeing that. Okay, what was that like for you though? I don't even know that I was processing it. I would, I, it's hard to process it because you're just sort of sitting there like, uh-huh, this is different. <laughs> right? So I spent a lot of time saying, huh, this is, this is different. And, and even in, in some conversation with my colleagues, I remember a particular coworker of mine mentioned that her father just wrote a check to cover her college tuition. And I remember thinking, uh-huh, that's interesting. I don't think anyone I know has such a father in their lives, right? That can do that. So I just had a lot of uh uh-huh moments where I'm like, wow, that's really interesting. And so I was just sort of going through these experiences, but again, it was, it was my job. And then I paired that with reading and part of pairing it with reading, I was able to put more context into what I was experiencing. So an example is Soto Mayor's, Sonia Sotomayor's book, her memoir, I'm not sure if you've read it, But she makes a comment when she was in Princeton and she was talking to her classmates and she found out for the first time about this thing called SAT prep. And her reaction already at Princeton was, huh, I had no idea that SAT 
prep was a thing. I thought people were just really smart and took the tests and got and did really well on the SAT because they were just really smart. And then her second thought was, even if I did know that SAT prep was a thing, I probably would not have been able to afford it. So it was irrelevant anyway. So it's sort of those aha moments where you see that the path to those experiences are driven by people's financial capacity based on the zip codes they were born in. And so that's something that for me, I was able to learn more about my experiences and my connection with wealth because of the books that I was reading. And then I wanted to, I was more curious to learn more about it. And so I just started reading more and more books. And I was just reading books by people who inspire me, like Sotomayor and others. Michelle Obama's memoir as well. She talks about how she was always playing on the broken piano key and she had no idea how to play on a brand new piano because she was so used to playing on this broken key. So that's a very common reality where we just figure it out. We just have to make it work. So yeah, I think that because of the nature of my job and having to have so many conversations with people who are super wealthy, I just was curious to learn more. Did you have any feelings being around those people uh, that besides the, huh, did it conjure up any thoughts? <laughs> That's a really big question. <laughs> I would say this. In my experiences, the majority of people who don't have money tend to be the most generous of people. And the people who have enough money to solve the problems that exist in our world are not the most generous people that I've met. Why do you think that is? It's white privilege and feeling that there's a desire to keep the wealth and the life that they have. And it was not something that they necessarily have earned and not wanting to be responsible to recognize that the wealth was at the backs of enslaved. When you kind of think about capitalism and when you think about the wealthies of the wealthy, the wealth was not earned. The majority of the wealth was passed on over generations. And when you look at the history of it, it doesn't come from a place where they came from humble beginnings. It came from the past on generations and just wanted to kind of continue to protect that. And I think that the power dynamics for me, it just needs to really change. And so I think that, again, it's just that centering whiteness and feeling that giving back the balance of power is really charity, is that still is a mindset that exists. And working in a nonprofit, I, I believe in the responsibility to evolve from a charity mindset to a justice mindset, where that, that money was not earned. And we have a responsibility or those who have the wealth have responsibility to bring it back to the communities that deserve it. Janine, through this evolution you've gone through uh, from your youth to where you are today, how do you describe what your relationship is with money at this moment? Money is the root of all of our experiences, right? But I think that can be a bad thing or a good thing. It depends how you use it. So that's what, I, well, that's what I feel. It's you can have incredible experiences. I mean, I've been fortunate enough to be able to travel and have incredible experiences because 
of money. And without that, I wouldn't be able to have that. When I was young growing up, I didn't have those experiences. I didn't travel because we couldn't afford it. Our family of seven. I've been able to experience different sort of cuisines. I've been able to meet different kinds of people from different cultures, learn, be exposed to different things. So like that's all money. But I also am in a mindset where it builds also community. And what does that mean? What does that look like? And I, I feel a responsibility to also center community among that. And part of the community, I would say from a Latino community, because I, my family, as I mentioned, is from Ecuador, is also bringing together people, their food and celebration and party. But that's also, it's money. So when I think about like money, I think about it in different sort of ways. But I don't think about it in the scarcity mindset that I used to when I was growing up. I think about it as it can create experiences, but also there's different dimensions to that. I mentioned the, the generational wealth as well, thinking about, you know, the future, not just the moment and the joyful moments, thinking about the future. So I think about it in a more sort of like, you know, multidimensional sort of way. Janine, as you started to shift your mindset and generate these ideas and work toward this more generational wealth, building your own wealth, what was happening to your relationship with your family? I would say probably from Latino communities, we're very much driven by our families and dynamics by our families and making sure that our families are okay. I would say that for me, it's created some, I don't want to say distance because that sounds negative, but I would say that I am more about community. When I think about community, that's not just my brothers and sisters and my nephews and nieces, it's community, it's all of us. And so I think that when I think about money, I think about the responsibility to educate others, inform, connect. I feel a responsibility to lift, to empower. I've learned this. Let me go talk to as many people as possible to make sure that they're also learning and taking that information in a way that they can also be empowered and empowered others. So part of that means that I'm spending more time with a lot of people having a lot of conversations. So my family is not. They're spending time with their families, with their children, with their spouses, which is normal and that makes sense. So my, my mind, I would say, or my responsibility that I feel is much grander. So I feel like I just spent less time because my conversations are more elevated in the sense that it's just not me and my daughter. It's me and my daughter and everyone that could benefit from a conversation about how they can be empowered, how they can come out of certain circumstances. So it's all about empowerment and and the fact that you're now in a very different personal financial situation than you were when you were younger. It doesn't sound like that's disrupted anything with your family. Right. It hasn't disrupted at all. No, not at all. It's just more that I feel that when you're with your family, you kind of want to talk about when's dinner coming out, right? Who's, where's the food at, right? You're not, you're not trying to have these sort of like conversations all the time. And so, and that, and that's great too. Like I'm, I'm with that as well. But I would say that for me, I feel very inspired and wanted to just empower others that I think that that sort of drives me and the way I spend my time, where I spend a lot more time out there engaging with community and kind of engaging with others. Tell us about your conversations with your daughter. How are you instilling the values that are so important to you to this very important person in your life? 
Thank you for that question. I've always been very transparent with my daughter about just my life and my experiences because I always say to her, like, I, you're going to make your own mistakes. I just don't want you to make the mistakes that I've made. I've always been very open in talking to her about that. I talked to her about financial decisions that weren't the best. I talked to her about, as I'm learning more about about wealth, really trying to kind of encourage her and engage her in conversations about what does that look like for her? What does she want? It's something that I absolutely love the fact that she thinks about her investments. I talked to her, she's in her 20s, she's 24. And I talked to her about her retirement plan. So I'm like, okay, great. Making sure you're invested in your retirement plan, making sure that you can make an occasional purchase to buy those cute tops or whatever that you want to get, but making sure that, you know, do you really need that? Making sure that as part of your monthly budget, it includes savings, it includes like, what are you putting aside and making sure that you're not putting money out every time you're you're getting paid, making sure that you're thinking thoughtfully, making sure you're thinking about long-term, what do you want? Thinking about your car, thinking about, you know, do you want to buy a house? Do you want a condo? Do you want this? What does that look like? How much do you have to put down? What, what is the percentage that you should put down? Thinking about the interest rates. So we talk about everything and we talk about it because I want her to know that she shouldn't just be making decisions because it sounds like a nice idea, but that it's really thoughtful and making sure that she recognizes the sort of like the long-term impact of some of those decisions and making sure that she's not putting herself in a situation that she's then regretting it later on. And oftentimes what that regret looks like is you feel shame. You can't talk about it because, wow, you made these bad financial choices and now you have to sit with the shame and not recognizing, well, we didn't have the financial literacy that we deserve to have. So we were just trying our best to survive. And so kind of stripping away that shame. So rather than letting her kind of go down that path, path that I've gone down and that others that I know have have also gone down, making sure that I'm talking to her about those things. So we talk about everything. Again, retirement, investments. I talk about her kids that she doesn't even have. Like, okay, when you have kids, she's like, I don't want kids. I like dogs, you know? So it's like, okay, well, let's just pretend one day you change your mind and you'll have your dogs and maybe a kid or two. Like, you know, so let's just imagine. So we talk about kids that she doesn't want to talk about. (laughs) So yeah, so that's what it looks like. We talk about multiple generations. (laughs) I love that. Thank you. I probably overwhelm her. (laughs) Doesn't sound like it. (laughs) Janine, you're, you're a very experienced person when it comes to talking about money, talking with your daughter about everything, talking to wealthy donors and everyone in between. What's the hardest money conversation you've ever had? I think the hardest money conversation I've had is probably related to my work where I'm working with multi-billionaires and I have to make an ask for their financial support of our work. And it is so painful because I've done my research. I know how much they have and I know how much they can make and the amount that they are willing to give is like pennies to compare to their capacity. And it's painful to me because as a person of color who grew up in the circumstances that I've mentioned earlier, like I just wanted to call them out on it. Like, I just want to say like, stop being so daggone cheap because I know you can, I know you can do better than this. And it's just so, it's just so like, unfortunate to have this conversation that I have to grovel for your like pennies. And so I would say that's probably one of the most 
painful conversations that I've had to have. I would say that in my current role, I think that, you know, our conversations are different in, in the organization that I currently work as. So this is at, at past organizations where, again, as I mentioned, I'm working with billionaires and multi-billionaires who have the capacity. I mean, it's, it's just painful. So I would say that that probably would be the most painful and difficult money conversations that I've had. If you were one of those multi-billionaires, what would you be doing with that wealth? Wow, I've never thought about that. Well, I would say maybe I have. I remember growing up, one of the ways that we imagine being that is through lottery. I forgot to mention that growing up because we did not have the ability to sort of like dream with what financial positions we can be in in the future. The only way to get there was by playing lotto, right? So you would imagine, but back then it was just kind of silly. Like, you know, I'm going to buy myself all these houses. I'm going to buy everybody I know a house. I'm going to you know, I'm gonna buy myself a couple of boats. I'm gonna buy myself a few cars. I'm gonna give everyone, and you know, like Oprah, you know, I'm giving everyone a car. So you kind of sort of play that growing up. I would say that I probably wouldn't be doing that now. I'm in a different place in my life where I'm not just passing out houses to everyone that I've come come to pass with, which may be disappointing from some of the people that I know. But I would not be doing that. I would say that I probably wouldn't just take a step back. And I think that I would probably not make a decision immediately. I would take a step back and I would probably reflect on sort of, I mentioned the word legacy before, is what is the legacy for me in in my life and where is it that I can make the biggest impact and where is there also the greatest need? And I know right now in some of the things that you can, and you can ask me next year for this question or next week and next month, and my answer may be different, but I know grassroots organizations are on the ground and are making real big change, fundamental change. And so for me, that is a group of work that is so underfunded, grassroots movements, that I think that can definitely receive significant investments in funds. And that is probably one where I would probably support and see what that might look like and what is sort of the the impact of that investment. But yeah, I would say probably grassroots organizations. Janine, what's one piece of money wisdom you'd like to share with our listeners that we haven't touched upon? The biggest takeaway that I hope people have is just getting comfortable and talking about it. Even those who have made bad money decisions, it's okay. The shame is a real thing. And just being able to acknowledge that you're not alone. I mean, there's so many individuals and again, particularly as I mentioned, people who come from communities that I come from have made decisions that later on in their learning, as you learn more, you know, you, you try to do better, but it's so hard to come out of your circumstances. So just talking about it. I actually recently read this book by Stacey Abrams, Lead from the Outside. And she has a chapter on it that's specifically dedicated to money. And I love the fact that she was just so honest in talking about her own financial mistakes in this book. And it's so important for leaders like Stacey Abrams and others to have those honest conversations because it gives people permission to talk about their truth. It gives people permission to say, oh my gosh, I'm not alone in making those bad decisions. I'm not alone. And it's not my fault. Sometimes you try your best and when you're in survival mode, you try your best and you, and bad decisions happen, but you're not alone and it's okay. So I think that coming out of the shame and you're not alone is just really important. What's your next money conversation going to be and who's it going to be with? I would say it probably would be young people. 
I think that it's so important to make sure that these conversations are being had very early on. So young people, and particularly as young people are thinking about going into college, I would say high school students, they are sold on the image of the beautiful lawn. They're reading their books underneath the tree, and it looks so beautiful and amazing, but not realizing that that imagery and that dream that has financial implications. So I want to make sure that they have the tools to make decisions that will impact the rest of their lives. So it's so important to have those conversations, I would say, for high school students. Janine Kahihe, thank you so much. Your curiosity, passion, drive, and transparency is admirable and also contagious. So thank you for sharing that with us and our listeners on Money Tales. Thank you, Janine. Thank you so much for having me. This was fun. Sandy, what was your biggest takeaway from this really eye-opening conversation with Janine Kahihe? Cammie, it's hard to come up with one big takeaway. There were so many in this conversation, but I will start by saying I really like the leather jacket story that Janine shared with us. It was interesting how she used that story to share with us the implications of having a scarcity mindset. And scarcity mindset is something that's come up in Money Tales before, most recently in our conversation with Cicely Gay. And I really liked how Janine added some more color around that and the idea that if you don't have means and you've worked hard, it feels really good to buy something that's nice and shiny and provides a lot of joy, at least for the short term. But then later in the conversation, Janine went on to talk about the difference between income and wealth and understanding that. And I I thought that was wonderful too, because when we think about personal financial planning, two of the building blocks that we work with clients on is one, a cash flow or income statement, how much money is coming in, how much money is going out, and anything that's left over is an addition to the balance sheet, which is the other building block. What do you have and what are your liabilities against it? And certainly from a cash flow perspective, if you are not bringing in as much money as is going out, then you have a deficit and that reduces your balance sheet. You're creating a liability. I think for many people in this country, the easiest way to plug the shortfall is using a credit card or some other short-term debt. And Janine shared with us how in immigrant communities where there is little banking, there was the SUSU arrangement, which is a very informal and it sounds not entirely risk-free way to plug uh, deficits when they occur. What about you, Cami? What was your biggest takeaway? Thanks for sharing that story because it is it was really eye-opening. But another one for me was... When Janine was really taking control of her life, she had her daughter, she really wanted to create something different for her. And so what she she said she did at that point was she became a sponge. She said the key to it all was curiosity. So she asked questions and she wanted to get direction. She, She sought out a mentor. And I thought that was really such an important message for all of us to hear and be reminded of, no matter where you are in life, 
how important questions are. You don't know everything and just ask. And from those questions, you'll seek your guidance and your direction. She did run into some who didn't give her the answer she wanted to hear. And happily and thankfully, Janine is strong. And as she said, also got a little angry, which gave her some confidence. And she found, you know, to seek out those who gave her the answers to the questions that that would encourage her to get to the next level. And to me, I thought that was a really important message, whether that is in your money conversations, whether that's life, anything, to seek and be curious is is really, really an important growth mindset. Kimmy, I'm so glad you brought that up because when Janine was sharing this with me, I was realizing that curiosity is one of the least talked about superpowers that exists. Mm. And so I, I agree with you. Uh, be curious, ask questions, learn more. It's certainly something uh, that I have done more and more in my life as I continue to get older and realize that there's so much more to learn. And if you just ask questions, it's really a quick way to get the information you're looking for and, and get some great ideas that you can leverage and grow from. I love that notion, a superpower. I'm using it. I, right? I'm, a little cape, big capital C yeah. on the back. Curiosity. I've got, cape. I've got it. I think also that something I want to mention from the conversation with Janine is something really insightful that she shared, which was around the idea of folks who make money for the first time when they come from a situation where they don't have money are often having to pay back money to cover mistakes that they made when they didn't have any money. It's something I hadn't thought about, and I think it's really hard to do for people who have accumulated debt or have gotten into financial trouble in some way, and then they start making money. Not only is it hard to repay that debt, but it it can be incredibly difficult to change the mindset and realize that you are becoming financially successful and that your future can be different than thing your past. So I'm glad Janine brought that up for people who might be in that situation. You're not alone. This is common. And be curious, ask questions, seek assistance, and pay back those quote unquote mistakes as quickly as you can so you can move forward in life. Money Tales really underscores that. If we keep talking about it, it becomes less of this monstrous mistake and more of life and learning and we'll grow from it and we'll continue to be curious. Cammie, I had so much fun talking to Janine. I'm so appreciative that she took time out of her busy schedule to be on Money Tales and talk with us. Me too, Sandy, in the midst of a move. So we really appreciate that, carving out that time. And Janine Kahihe, thank you very much. We really appreciated you joining us on Money Tales. And to our listeners, thanks for being part of this conversation. You can always contact us at podcasts at Asperient.com. We'd love to hear about your money conversations. Yes. And we love it when you rate our podcast and create some comments too. So thank you in advance for doing that. And we will see you next time on Money Tales. You've been listening to Money Tales, hosted by Sandy Brager and Cami Doder. To subscribe to the show on your favorite platform or to increase your money mojo via their blog, Fathom, head on over to Asperient.com slash podcasts. Thanks, and we'll see you next time 
on Money Tales. 